Well, given that my wife and I spent nearly all of our lives in California and in D.C., since moving here a little over a year ago, we've been trying to immerse ourselves in this new state that we've come to love so much. And one of those things we've sought to do is to try to learn more about some of the residents, the, the natives of Arkansas, some of those famous natives. And you can't long get into a conversation about famous individuals from Arkansas without coming across that iconic figure of Johnny Cash. A man whose life in so many respects simply defied convention. A man who's as revered today, in fact, as he was when he first started making music back in the 1950s. His mom was a committed Baptist. And thus, Johnny, growing up, donned many a church door in his day. And he knew, therefore, about religion. And thus, one of his early albums was a gospel work called Hymns of the Heart. Hymns of the Heart. And there was a final song on that album titled These Hands. And that final song closed to that gospel album, closed with these words. A prayer, Lord above, hear my plea. When it's time to judge me, take a look at these hard-working hands. Take a look at these hard-working hands. Those were Johnny's final words of hope and this final song of one of these first gospel albums that he would produce. So just a question for you. What do you think? Is that the hope, the gospel hope that we Christians cling to? You know, do we, at the end of the day, before God, say, God, take a look at these hard-working hands. What about you? You know, when all is said and done, and when you breathe your last, and when you stand before the Lord, will you look at Him and say, Lord, take a look at these hard-working hands? Is that our plea on that last day? Well, to help us think of some of these things, I want us to return back to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You can find it, I think, on page 973 if you're using one of those Bibles provided in the seat back before you. And as you turn there, if you're just joining us, if you were brave enough this morning to decide of all mornings, yep, today I'm going to go to church. Today's going to be the day I'm going to brave the cold and the ice and the, the hills around here, around our campus, and, and I'm going to come. If that was you, glad to have you. Just a bit of a, to bring you up to speed as to where we've been these last few weeks in the book of Galatians. This is a book written by the Apostle Paul, really a letter to a series of churches throughout sort of modern day, which, what is what, uh, much of modern day Turkey. And it was a book written to these churches who had been invaded by a host of false teachers. And the central book, as we've looked at it, seems to be, the central issue in the book, rather, seems to be this. Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? For that's what these false teachers were advocating to these young Gentile, these non-Jewish converts. They were advocating, hey, listen, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the various stipulations of the Mosaic law laid out in the Old Testament. Paul's gospel, they said, it was, it was deficient. He had left these things out. It was a distorted gospel message. You can't rely upon that. You need to listen to us, they said. They were saying the way forward in Christ was to go back to the law. 
right? Moses had to complete what Jesus had left incomplete. That was, in fact, what they were saying to these young Gentile converts. And so Galatians is Paul's response to much of that. And in chapter 1, 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, in that first week, we saw Paul in that section, he was really on the defensive. And his basic argument was, listen, there is only one gospel given by God, and to add anything to it, circumcision, works of the law, etc., to add anything to it was, in fact, to abandon it. But then as we got in last week to 2.15 through 2.21, Paul then goes on the offensive, and he's saying, listen, humanity's greatest need is reconciliation, to be brought into a right relationship with God. And as our greatest need is reconciliation, therefore God provided justification. And he talked a bit about that in 2.15 through 21. And the thesis of the whole book was right there in chapter 2, verse 16, when Paul wrote, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. That two great contrasts right there. And then in really chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 12, that's really the heart of the letter. And it's an extended biblical and theological proof supporting that thesis that we're not justified by works of the law, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so that's 3, 1 through 5, 12 is the support of that statement. We're going to get into that right now in chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through verse 22, the beginning of Paul's support of that statement. He writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's from Genesis 15 that Stephen read to us a few minutes ago. Paul goes on, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Well, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, the righteous would indeed be by the law. Righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, we're going to stop there. I recognize Paul covers a good bit of ground in these verses. And some of it, as you read it, seems rather foreign to us. Talking about covenants and so forth, lots of quotations, trying to understand where those are from. But if you were listening carefully, you probably picked up on a few things. Some themes that were sort of reoccurring throughout this section. That theme of the law mentioned a good 14 times or so. That theme of faith or belief mentioned 12 times. That word promise kept returning, if you notice that. That word promise coming up eight times in the section. And what becomes quite clear is that Paul's really contrasting two ways by which men and women seek a good standing before God. And this is really the central issue that has preoccupied all biblical writers that have followed like east of Eden. It's the central concern of nearly every religion, right? How am I brought into a right relationship with God? How am I justified? How am I accepted by God? As one author helpfully put it, how do I stand in his favor and under his smile? How do we do that? For all of us, one day, all of us will die. This is what Johnny's saying of. We're going to die one day. We're going to be summoned before our creator. And on that day, we don't have a Johnny Cochran or some other high-profile defense team that can come to our aid and make our case before God. Is our best defense then simply to say, God, look at these hard-working hands? Is that our best defense? Will that suffice? Or is Paul here pointing us to another set of hands? I think you can summarize the thrust of Paul's argument in chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, like this. He says, our justification is based on God's promise, not our performance. I think that's the basic thrust of this whole section. It's really his main point. It'll serve as our main point this morning. Our justification is based on God's promise, not our performance. But how can we be certain of that? Well, Paul gives us four reasons. He really supports that assertion four different ways in the text. And so think this morning, we got one main point, sort of four subpoints. If so, if you're a careful note taker, I've just helped you see that. He's going to say, first, we can be certain that justification comes by promise and not our own performance because in verses 1 to 5, you experience this. And then he's going to say in verses 6 through 9, but Abraham also believed this. 
And then verses 10 to 14, the law and the prophets teach this. And verses 15 to 22, the Mosaic law actually reinforces this. Now, if you didn't get all that, don't worry. We're going to get into it as we get into the sermon. But how do we know? How can we be confident as we walk out these doors this morning that justification is based on God's promise, not our own performance? Paul's first point, his first support, verses 1 to 5, you experience this, he says. Pointing to the Galatians, he says, you experience this. Now, Paul comes out of the gates in chapters 3 a little bit like he did back there in chapter 1, except there, sort of the, there he had thunder, and here there's a little more sarcasm in his voice, but it's, it's no less biting and indicting of them. He effectively says, if you want to sort of paraphrase this, he says, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, wake up. I mean, have you fallen into some trance? I mean, surely you aren't this dense and gullible. Do you not remember the message that I preached to you, the message you heard? Must I remind you again? Evidently I must. You seem to have forgotten it. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul, in verses 1 to 5, he's appealing to their own experience, especially to the message they had heard. So when Paul writes, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, he's not suggesting they were witnesses to the crucifixion, not at all. Nor did Paul travel from city to city, hoisting up wooden crosses to shock the masses like he was some circus entertainer. That's not how Paul went about and did his ministry. He's referring there to his preaching. Christ portrayed. Christ as I preached him to you. He's attempting to call them out of their spiritual stupor and remind them of that message that he had so clearly proclaimed. Which is just a good reminder for us, again, of the necessity of preaching. The work of the Spirit and the early church, God working through his word, it is no different with how he works today. The message of salvation, it's not finally something we observe. We weren't there to see Christ crucified. It's not something we smell or or taste or touch. It comes through the ear. Christianity is about a message. A message that has to be heard and then believed. A message that we must share. Right? Romans 10, faith comes how? By hearing. Hearing the message of Christ. And so what was the essence of the message Paul preached Well, he says it, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. That was the essence of his message. Now I know it's Christmas time, but the essence of Christianity isn't some precious moments manger scene. That's not as Christians, what we celebrate when we celebrate Christ. It's not Jesus merely as some enlightened teacher or Jesus who's become some social revolutionary who likes to challenge the status quo. People will grab Jesus to use him to those those ends. That's not how the Bible presents Jesus to us. At the center of Christianity is the sickening, most grisly torture of the beautiful man, most beautiful man that has ever walked the face of the earth. Why? Because you and I, because we're such lovely creatures? Not at all. It's because in the Bible, the only way to redeem the otherwise irredeemable was to do the unthinkable. The perfect Son of God had to come down to us 
Remember last week, we couldn't ascend our way, make our way up to him. No, he had to descend, come to us in the form of a man, a humble man. And he, the son of God, had to die in the stead of ruined sinners. And if you reflect upon that, just recognize for a moment that there is nothing that anybody can ever say to you that's worse than the cross of Christ and what it has already said about you. Nothing anyone can ever say to you or me worse than what the cross already pronounces about you and me. That we were so hopeless, so contemptible, so pitiable that the perfect son of God had to slowly bleed out and suffocate upon an instrument of human torture for you, for me. It's a chilling picture of how utterly lost we truly are and yet how powerfully and how wonderfully God has chosen to care for us in Christ. It is both those things at the same time. And so with that, with that cross in mind, we can't ever mistake Christianity as merely good advice that God offers to men. No, it's God's answer to the sins of men. That's not good advice. It is his answer to our problem, to our sins. It's not an invitation to merely be a better man, but it is a declaration that Christ, he was the best man. So why then, Paul says, having begun this way, grasping the cross of Christ and your utter need for salvation, for forgiveness in him, why in the world would you now abandon it for another way? Why would you do that? He says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, when did I ever tell you to complete by the law what Christ left incomplete upon the cross? Did I write? It is he who began a good work in you. Oh, and now he's helplessly waiting for you to complete it. That's not Paul's message. That's not the message of the cross. He says, you remember my preaching when Jesus says, It is finished. He meant it. Jesus didn't leave you to save yourselves. He saved you. And not one drop of his blood was spilt in vain. The Father chose you. The Son was bruised for you. The Spirit renews and produces fruit in you. That is the message I proclaimed. And God did all that without any help from you. Why would you go any other way? Well, friends, we got to hear that same reminder. Because we continue in the Christian life the same way we began the Christian life, and that is by faith. There is no other way. We continue in the Christian life the same way we began, by faith. And yet so often, we're saved by faith, and then we seek to keep ourselves in the favor of God by all the works we do. It's the temptation of the human heart. We see it here in in these Galatians. And yet, we've got to remember that that gospel that we believed and 
works that we think keep us in the favor of God, those are two entirely different religions. One bids us to obey, the other bids us to believe. One calls us in our angst to labor harder, and the other says, no, 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 no. look higher. Look to Christ. Look to him on a cross for you. One says, give your best. And the other one says, hey, no, no, he's already given his best. You know you're standing in Christ. Take that. Believe that by faith. All right, we live for God not to gain his favor. We live for God, he's going to say in the rest of chapters 5 and 6, we live for God because we already have his favor. That is the best motivation you would ever desire for holiness, knowing you have his favor. Oh, friend, if you're in Christ, I hope that is your hope this morning. Not that God is expecting more from you. Not that he's demanding more from you. Not that he's looking down upon you this morning with a great frown because of what you did or didn't do. If you are in Christ, united to Christ, clothed in Christ, justified in him by faith, there is no favor you lack before God. None whatsoever. So continue in the Christian life by faith, trusting in that gospel the same way you began. Justification based on God's promise, not our performance. The Galatians, Paul says, listen, you experienced that. You knew what that was like. Don't walk away from it. But he makes another point. He says, not only you experienced it, he says in verses 69, 6 through 9, Abraham believed this. Abraham believed this. And here Paul transitions really from their personal history, verses 1 to 5, and really 6 through 22 is really all about salvation history. So he begins with their personal history, but then he really looks more broadly at salvation history. And that's what he traces from Abraham to Moses to Christ. And Paul says, okay, you want chapter and verse? You want chapter and verse? I'm going to give you chapter and verse. And he's going to list verse after verse, six different verses up through verse really 14, both from the law and the prophets, beginning with Abraham and yet moving on to Habakkuk, for example, all to support that scripture was the word that left that, that gave them. It was the word that preached justification by faith. It was what had been confirmed by their experience. So he gives them this guided tour through the Old Testament, again, beginning with Abraham in verses six to nine, which if you think about it, that's a master stroke by Paul. Go right to Abraham. Because, of course, Abraham was the Judaizer's spiritual father in the faith. I mean, appealing to Abraham, that's like appealing to the Pope if you're Catholic. You know, maybe like appealing to Spurgeon if, you know, you're some Baptist. It's it's settling the argument. And Paul's saying, listen, how was Abraham justified? You who call yourself sons of Abraham. Okay, I want you to tell me, how was Abraham justified? And he trots out his first scriptural proof. In verse 6, he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we heard earlier from Genesis 15, 6, where God had promised in Genesis 15 to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. A promise that if you think about Abraham's situation at the, the moment of that promise, it defied all expectations. Right? Abraham had no children. His wife was old and beyond childbearing years. And yet because God said it, and God never tells a lie, despite his apparent hopeless situation, Abraham believed it. He believed it. Which 
just it's good for us to recognize that sometimes people talk about faith as being that which we believe in opposition to fact. Faith is in opposition to fact. It's, it's blindly believing what is expressly contrary to fact. And so thus Christians are referred to as those pitiable souls who plug their ears and, and shut their eyes and ignore all plain truth. And yet the Bible doesn't say faith is in opposition to the facts. Faith is merely recognizing there is more than fact. There is more than meets the eye. Faith recognizes we live. We live in God's world. And things that seem improbable to us, perhaps even impossible to us, they are not impossible to God. And Abraham understood that. And he believed that about God. I love what Romans 4, 19 through 21 says about Abraham. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And Paul goes on to write, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is, my friends. It's being fully convinced that God will fulfill the promises that he makes. His watch may keep a different time than ours. Right? We've talked about how God may have may appear slow to keep his promises, but 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us that we shouldn't consider God as, as slow necessarily, but his apparent slowness to us is a, actually a form of his patience. It's a form of his love. Right? God's promises are not like the promises of, of empty politicians. He doesn't make them merely to secure our temporary obedience without any real plan or, or any real possibility to fulfill those promises. No, there is not a single promise that God makes to any of us that he will not then keep for us. Not a single one. And it's this belief that Abraham possessed that we read is counted to him as righteousness. As righteousness. Abraham didn't have to become righteous in order to be declared righteous by God as Roman Catholicism teaches, as we thought about last week. No. Abraham understood. The gospel understood. Paul understood. We are indeed unrighteous. But on the basis of our faith in Christ, we are counted righteous, though we are not, in fact, righteous. And Abraham knew he didn't deserve it. Nor, Paul's bringing Abraham up to show, nor did Abraham, by the law, merit that righteousness. Because Paul goes on to quote verses 7 to 9, and he highlights Genesis 12, 3 in that section, just to remind them, listen, all these promises given to Abraham, they were given before the law ever came into being. Right? These Judaizers were arguing the only true child of Abraham was the one who kept the law. And Paul's saying, wait, stop for a minute. How can that be? Abraham never possessed the law. He was a true child of God, not on the basis of the law, but how? By belief. Right, two children of Abraham aren't those who bear the physical mark of Abraham as they were calling for in circumcision. No, Romans 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. He's undoing their own assumptions. And just before we move on, it's good to note the progression in Paul's argument here. 
Notice what he does. He speaks of their own experience. And then he moves from that to ground it all in scripture. From experience to scripture. Which is a good reminder to us that our experiences, as powerful, as moving as they may be, they're not finally authoritative. Our experiences aren't finally authoritative. They, they might be beneficial, but they can't ever be the basis of our faith. Because it can be very easy for us to confuse an experience, perhaps an impression or a dream or some strong subjective sense of God's leading. We can easily confuse that. As many did in the books of the New Testament, we can easily confuse that with the Holy Spirit's leading Which is why Paul says, no, whenever you feel led by the Spirit, some experience, ground that in God's Word. See if that's what God, how God is actually leading you. And it's no different for us as it was for these Galatian Christians. Our authority in the Christian life, not our experience, it's the truth finally of God's Word. Which is why you have to let that be the basis by which you test all of your feelings or impressions Test them according to those incontrovertible facts of Scripture. And when you feel led, make sure you're being led by Scripture. Because that is the only way God ever leads his people according to his word. Okay, Paul's not done though. He's actually only gotten started. He said, okay, how are we based? How do we know we're based? Justification on God's promise, not our performance. He's like, yeah, you experienced this. And listen, Abraham believed this. But not only that, the law and the prophets, they teach this. This is what is actually taught you Judaizers if you actually read and understood your Old Testament. The law and the prophets teach this. He says that in verses 10 to 14. In these verses, Paul effectively says, go back in your closet. Remember those theological big boy pants I talked to you about? Go grab them and put them on because we're going to have a little scriptural study. And that's what he does in verses 10 to 14. He's going to call the law and the prophets and he's going to call them up to the mic And he's going to give them four opportunities to speak. He's going to quote four different Old Testament texts. And he's going to say, listen, all these distinct Old Testament texts, they all bear witness to the same truth. They make the same testimony. One voice that our way into God's favor has always been and only been by faith. That's what he's going to show. The law and the prophets, they teach this. He'll quote in verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Right? God's perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. And to love him wholly means that we must obey him wholly. You know, God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, rejecting the God of the universe even once, that's not like forgetting a math equation on an exam. It's not the same thing. James 2.10, whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. A criminal is not one who's broken every single law possible, but rather he's broken a law worthy of incarceration. That's what we call a criminal. And any infraction against a God as perfect and as good as the God of Scripture is presented to us, the Bible says any infraction, however small, renders us guilty, renders us criminals, renders us under the curse of the law. And thus we begin to see, whereas the law is wonderful at condemning us, it is not so good at delivering us. And so Paul quotes from Habakkuk, And he says, listen, the righteous shall live by faith. 
That wasn't just what Abraham believed. That's many years later, the same hope that Habakkuk had. But to trust in the law, verse 12, Paul says, listen, you know that that obliges us to live by the law. And which of us can live perfectly under the law? I don't know if you know the name A.J. Jacobs, but he's a best-selling New York Times author. He wrote this bestseller, The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. All right, and if you know the book, it is a silly book because the guy literally, without reflecting a whole lot on the story of salvation history, really at all, he's like, okay, I'm just going to live according to every command I can find. And he identifies a couple hundred. And so he attempts to do that as he lives his life, modern day New York City. He, wasn't, he won't shave. He won't wear clothes with mixed fibers. And he tries to live a year like this. And it's really just one long extended attempt to sort of mock in many respects what the Bible has to say. And his conclusion was, you know what? Try to live by the law. It's hopelessly impossible. You can't do it. If you know the story from Greek um, mythology, Sisyphus, you know, the one who's, who has to shoulder, put a shoulder behind the wheel to push it up the mountain, that's a bit like what it's like to live under the law. The law is that boulder, and it is heavy, and it is large. We put our shoulder to it. We might make a few inches. We make a few feet, but we stumble the slightest over the smallest pebble. We go down, and it crushes us every single time. Jacobs didn't put it like that, but that's what he was referenced. That's what he was noting, and that's what we know. That's what Paul's saying they should know. To seek to live by the law, it only results, results in the curse of the law, which is why he said Jesus has to become a curse for us. Verse 13. Verse 13, that's really the gospel in miniature. We have it right there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us. You see, the gospel is not merely how God demonstrates his love. The, the cross isn't merely reflecting the self-giving character of God. And he says, go and do likewise. Be like me. To speak of Christ this way is to reduce him to, to, to nothing more than an advice column on the back of the paper. Or to make empty, pious platitudes about how the gospel's there to help us get along, to make this world a better place. Recognize Christ didn't just display the love of God. He bore the curse of God. He bore that curse. A ransom was paid. Substitution was made. That's exactly what the cross pictures. Every criminal sentenced to death under the Mosaic legislation and executed, everyone was hung on a tree as a symbol of divine rejection. So a man wasn't cursed because he was hung. No, he was hung because he was cursed. So think if you know the story of Absalom. Right, went up in rebellion against his father, taking the kingdom. And if you remember Absalom, you remember his fate? Dangling by his hair in a tree? Those details aren't accidental. They're given to us to teach us that yeah, Absalom was cursed, hung there by a tree, on a tree, and then impaled. He was a cursed man because he had taken a stand against the Lord's anointed, against David. Jesus, 
also, it says, in the same way, hung on a tree as a cursed man. So if you know in Corinthians, when the Christians would preach, sometimes the Jews would shout out in the middle of the preaching, Jesus is cursed. Because when they looked at a man hanging on a cross, they assumed he hung there because he was cursed by God. And Christians said, yes, he was cursed for you and for me, not his own sins, for your sins and for my sins. We're all cursed like Absalom until we recognize that curse that Jesus bore on the cross was not for him, but for us. It was for us. Right? The cross isn't God's desperate attempt to motivate you today. That's not what the cross is about. It's how he saved you. Jew and Gentile saves us all by that same means. So if you've come this morning and you're new to this news, I know it's cold, but let this news, let it warm your heart. Right? Renounce. Just let go of the proud folly that we all have in our own hearts that we can establish our own righteousness to God, that we can do enough and look at him and say, consider these hardworking hands. Just renounce that proud folly. Disabuse yourself of the assumption that you have such goodness before God that he would accept you that way. Christ has done it for you. He has done it. Look to him. That's what the Bible calls you to do. Look to him. Rest in him. Rest in Christ. Don't look to your own hands. Look to those who bore the curse of the law for you. Who bore it for you. Receive that gift this Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. God coming down to earth in the form of man to die as a man that he might reconcile us to God. That's a Christmas gift. If you don't know that gift, I pray you don't walk out these doors this morning without recognizing that gift, repenting of your sin, and resting in Christ. Resting in this one who can bear the curse of God for you. But Paul's not done. It is justification based on God's promise. Yes, not our performance. You Galatians experienced this. Abraham believed it. The law and the prophets teach this. And he's going to say, and this Mosaic law you trust so much reinforces it. The Mosaic law reinforces this. Verses 15 to 22. And Paul's argument seems, at first glance, somewhat esoteric to us. But in 15 to 18, Paul's effectively saying, listen, the blessings to Abraham were given as a promise by God. And thus to suggest that the law which came later annuls that promise, well, that's like calling God a liar. It suggests that he failed, that somehow his promise is, is, is void, that we can't trust him. And of course that can't be right. Which begs the question, all right, but what happened to Moses, Paul? Like you've gone from Abraham and, and what about Moses? What about the law? It seems like in your gospel, Moses gets like kicked out of the family picture. What role does he have to play then? Why then the law? Well, that's what he goes to in verses 19 to 22. Paul's answer, the law was never given to confer salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. Right? Why the law? You guys know I like 80s music. I can't, I just think Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Right? Like, what's law got to do with it? He's like, okay, you want to know? Here it is. Here it is. The law was never given to confer salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. That's his answer. And he says, listen. First thing it did, it incited sin. 
verse 19. The law, it was added because of transgressions. That doesn't mean the law was given to restrain men and women in their sin. Paul's actually teaching there that, it, that, that the law had the effect of provoking sin in our own hearts. It's what he later writes in Romans 5.20. The law came in to increase the trespass. Not because the law was evil, there was something wrong with it, but because how we in our fallen humanity, how we twist that law when confronted with God's goodness and we are incited so often to disobey him. It's one of my first memories as a kid. was there in the kitchen with my mom. She was doing something on the oven. I climbed up. And uh, she was finished up, and there were those old electric burners, and it was red hot. I just watched it, wasn't thinking anything about it. And all of a sudden she said, oh, and by the way, don't touch it. It's really hot. I hadn't given any thought to touching it. But I thought, oh, how hot is it really? It's not as red as it was a minute ago. So what did I do? And you know what happened. 30 seconds later, I'm wailing like a baby, and we're in the car going to the ER. Nothing wrong with my mom's command. It was a good command. It had the effect of inciting and provoking in me to the desire to disobey it. And that's what happens with our human nature. That's what the law did to those who received it. It incited them. But it didn't just incite them. Paul says it imprisoned them as well. Verse 22. It imprisoned them. It revealed our utterly hopeless condition. Laws themselves have always been insufficient because we become so adept at breaking the law. You want proof? Oh, my word, look no further than the IRS code, right? We are masters at finding ways around the law. I think Apple's figured this out the hard way if you've been reading much about what they owe the IRS. At any rate, the fundamental problem with the law is while it spells out what is right, it doesn't give us the power to do what is right. It spells it out, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. So asking a man to obey the law perfectly is like asking a man who's just broken both legs to jump up and down. Like it's a fine command, but both legs are broken. Of course he can't do it. He can't do it. It's not in his power to perform it. Which is why Paul says justification has always been based on promise, not our performance. So that, verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was given to impress upon us that we need that Savior by faith. That we can't get there by our own performance. It's got to be by God's promise. Which means, friends, God doesn't want your performance this morning but he does want your repentance. He doesn't want your performance, but he does want your repentance. Right? The law is a system of salvation entirely inadequate. Trusting in it, like that's like trusting in the, the fastened seatbelt side on an airplane. You know, that, that light starts flashing on an airplane. Flew a bit recently. You see that light start flashing. It's just telling you, hey, listen, there's probably danger ahead. Well, well what you need to do then is not trust in the sign that saves, but recognize that blinking light is pointing you to what ought to save you, namely that seatbelt. The law was the same way. Hey, listen, all's not well. All of this, the law, your inability to complete it and to do it, it's a flashing light. You are not well. This is not a way in which you can be saved. It's pushing you to the one who can save. 
So just a brief word to parents. As you just think about your own parenting of your kids, make sure your, your parenting isn't subtly or not so subtly teaching your children that they can be saved by their good behavior. Because we all think, kids in particular, especially at Christmas time, right? What's the song? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. We all think, yeah, better be good. Better get rewarded if we're good. That's how we think. So your parenting must reinforce, yes, does God call us to obey him in great, wonderful ways? He does. Is that a blessing? Is it for our benefit? Absolutely. Does that secure our favor with God if they go away and obey what we ask them? No. No. Turn them to the gospel and believing in what Christ has done for them. Make sure your kids and your own parenting know that because they need to know their hope is not finally in whether or not they can live rightly. They've got to know the one that has already lived rightly for them. That's the hope they must take away. All right. So in these verses, Paul's been just at pains to make clear that justification is God's promise, not our performance. It's always been his plan for all people. There aren't two ways to God. There's not a Jewish way and a Gentile way. Right? We're not headed to two different heavens. It's nothing like that. To quote Luther, justification by promise sets forth the religion of God, his plan, his grace, his initiative. Justification by law sets forth the religion of man, his duty, his works, his responsibility. One is only to be believed, whereas the other must lavishly be obeyed. So is your work. Rather, it's your hope, I should say. Is your hope this morning, back to that question that Johnny posed, Johnny Cash, is your hope, your plea, and the work of those hardworking hands? Is that your hope this morning? Johnny Cash believed that was his hope. And yet in the coming years, I think that album was released in 62, in the coming years after that album, he would come to know what it meant like to be truly enslaved. Time magazine would later write of him, here is a man who knew the commandments. He knew them all right because he had broken so many of them. If you know his life, you know that's true. And looking to himself and telling himself, yeah, I can trust in these hardworking hands, that brought him, if you know his story, to the end of himself. He saw that the law was, in fact, no way to God. He felt imprisoned. Not fulsome prison, I mean like spiritually imprisoned to the point where he sought to take his own life until God brought him to the point and revealed to him that there had been a life for him and it was Christ. He did not need to take his own. Another was taken in his place. And so it's no surprise that Johnny Cash would identify so well with Paul, the writer of our letter, the one who called himself the chief of sinners. He, he so resonated with Paul's writings. And thus Johnny looked. He didn't look finally to those hardworking hands that he had sung of early on in his career. But he, at the end of the day, looked to those outstretched arms. And he looked to those only hands that would finally save. Are you trusting in those hands? I pray you are. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray and we pray that the truth of your word, we pray it would hit us. God, if we have held out any hope 
that one day we can stand before you and that you'll grade on a steep curve and that we'll be okay and we might slide right in. Oh, God, disabuse us of that hope. Help us to see that there were another set of hands infinitely more worthy, more beautiful and perfect than our own. And you hold them out to us, not something we must earn or merit or achieve, but you hold them out to us, be received by the empty arms of faith. And God, we pray as believers that we wouldn't walk away from that gospel. Having won your favor, sitting under your smile in Christ, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't abandon all of that and attempt to earn it yet again by our own works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.